0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 8, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. New Hampshire consistently ranks high on Cato's freedom in the 50 states. New Hampshire's governor, Chris Sununu, perhaps not surprisingly, also fares well on Cato's fiscal policy report card. Last month I spoke with Senunu about a wide range of topics from the exportability of New Hampshire's consistent respect for freedom to police accountability to US support for the war in Ukraine. New Hampshire is tops consistently in the Freedom in the 50 States. You are near the top pretty consistently in Cato's Fiscal Policy Report Card for uh, America's governors. How much of that is replicable? Outside the uh, wonderful libertarian utopia. Lowercase or, l libertarian. Uh, that's, but right, yes. that's right. That's right. That's <laughs> right. That's how I've heard it described. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, outside of New Hampshire, how much of the. Yeah. How much does the model translate? Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, A lot of it, a lot of it. And, you know, one thing I'll say is, you know, we have our our motto, our live for your die motto. And you guys, I think, have heard me say before, it's more than four words on a license plate, right? It really is kind of the core of the values that we try to uh, live by, especially in in the public sector. So it it drives fiscal discipline, drives local control, limited government. Um, Even in cases when we might not like those outcomes at a localized level or within a business practice, a private business, it's their business, right? And the voters know more than the governor. They really do. Um, And so the voters uh, have, in a place like New Hampshire, the ultimate say. Uh, It is, uh, we just had our. a town meeting is coming up, right? So we have our, what we call our deliberative sessions. Those happen this week. I come from a town of 1500 people and we show up at deliberative session and, and we battle out these ideas and then town meeting comes and, and then you, know, you go and actually vote on this stuff and, and you have ultimate power as a voter and as a citizen in terms of where the majority of your taxes go. So how does that translate to the national level? Well, it can translate very well and it's not easy to do. Um, we've really stood disciplined on the shoulders of 200 years of success. Other states have slowly eroded away uh, a lot of those kind of, you know, I think, foundational uh, opportunities to, to keep things local. But you you can always get them back. And I, I always bring up Glenn Youngkin, right? Glenn said, parents matter. And they, it was a, the big uh, election turnaround in Virginia and all that and got independents excited. And it wasn't just about parents and schools. What he was saying is individuals matter. You matter. And, um, and I said to him, I said, boy, I love that someone from the 49 other states is finally talking about what we've been actually doing for 200 years in New Hampshire and why we have such high voter participation, why we have such engagement at the community level and ultimately why our first in the nation primary is so good. So can it translate? It, it absolutely can. Um, I'll, I'll take it from the federal level where everyone says, well, you can't, you know, this would never work in, in, a, in a federal level and it can actually work very easily. It's called block grants. It's called blocking down the opportunities of funding, blocking down uh, to states the opportunities of regulatory control, right? Why should the federal government have a one size fits all regulation when 50 different states have diff- 50 different scenarios and the opportunity for 50 different uh, aspects of competition, right? Let states battle it out. It's exactly the model that the founding fathers uh, designed to. And, and they were right. They were, as we say in New Hampshire, they were wicked smart, those founding fathers. So
0: I, I, I want to try to read into some of the implications of what you're saying. It sounds like you're saying we must dismantle the federal regulatory state. Uh, I don't think you need to
1: dismantle it. I think that maybe goes a little far. I think there's just so many opportunities to send the vast majority of the federal regulatory state back to states. And then you let the states send it back to cities and towns. And then the towns allow the voters to participate. It's a very different way of doing things, but it can be done actually very easily. And you know what the, the beauty of all of this is? That's how you balance a federal budget. People say you can't balance the federal budget. That's one of the key uh, aspects or metrics, I would say, in terms of uh, going after the federal budget. It ter- it's it's block granting the opportunities because you create massive efficiencies. It's the only way to drain the swamp. Something uh, you know, the former president talked about draining the swamp, but he never quite got how to do it. But when you don't need ten thousand employees at the Department of Education because you're sending the money and the regulatory control for you know a couple, you might have send a block grant for special ed and a block grant for general uh, school aid and a block rent for this. But, and then you send those regulatory controls back to the states as well. I don't need 10,000 employees and, and 500 lawyers at the Department of Education. I just need someone to kind of manage the money and, and some basic metrics coming back up.
0: So how many employees does the Department of Education need? Zero?
1: No, not zero. Uh, something slightly above zero. Uh, you want to look. You just need something in there to make sure you're auditing and making sure the the dollars aren't being spent on you know fishing rods. It's actually being spent on education. But that does not take an army of lawyers and 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 the thousands and thousands of individuals. Now it's the Department of Education. You can go down the line. Should some some regulation be uh, exist at the federal? Well, of course. You know, There's certain aspects of environmental regulation that probably should exist at the federal level. Not all of it, but uh, certain aspects of it, and that's fine. Certain aspects of oversight of Medicaid, if you're going to have Medicaid and Medicare, okay, fine. But there's so many other programs, t- thousands and thousands of programs. I'll use HUD. HUD is a great example. If you ever look at the flow chart of how HUD All the departments and all the grant programs out of housing and urban development actually work. It is it is complicated second only to um, uh, uh, Medicare and Medicaid as, as the most complicated programs out there. It is so convoluted. It has been a patchwork of just congressional giveaways year after year. And even they can't, can't follow it all. They have hundreds and hundreds of lawyers and staff. But again, it's okay to have those programs. Just send the money down, send a, a few brief guidelines and let states figure it out. And just uh, look, this goes to housing, C- figure out the housing that New Hampshire needs. For California, you figure out what you need and Texas, you figure out what you need. And then again, you just create so much efficiency when you do that. So uh to your initial question, can this be done nationally? Absolutely. And it can and should
0: start at the federal level. Uh, your party underperformed in the midterms. You didn't. I noticed. Your, your party Your party <laughs> did. Yeah. Um, what
1: what's the big lesson there? Uh, candidates matter. Candidate quality matters. You, if you, you're going to put up extreme candidates, you're going to put up losers. And uh, last time I checked, you can't govern if you don't win. And all I care about on my, with my party is winners. I want, I want winning. I like winning. Some, some former president used to say, I love winning. Well, you're going to have too much winning. Well, we didn't have a whole lot of it last November, frankly. Um, so candidate quality matters. And it doesn't mean you have to play to the middle. It doesn't mean you have to change your principles or your philosophies. But how you engage with the voter matters. Early, often person to person. Uh, It has to be about what's in the interest of your communities and your state. Uh, Too many folks are looking kind of to national politics as the guideline of what to do locally. And that is really where we failed. The Democrats were quite brilliant at predefining our candidates for. So even when we had more mainstream candidates, they were being predefined as as, as being extreme uh, because of one or two things they would say. And, and I give the Democrats a lot of credit for that. They really manipulated the, the Republican process. They invested millions into extreme candidates in their primaries, right? So you had Democrat donors giving to the Democrat party that would then invest in very extreme Republican candidates in the primary to ensure that that's who they were running against. And it worked to their credit. So, um, it's a manipulation of the system, and I think you need rules and guidelines around all that. Of course, going forward, I don't know if anyone will, will actually do that, but but they should. But more importantly, it, it it is about the can. You have to be able to look a candidate in the eye and and get a sense of who they are and what they're about, uh, just in terms of a personality. And then we get to, to policy. That's kind of how we do it in New Hampshire, and um, it did not translate well at all. So I hope there's an, a a lesson there. There is a clear lesson to be learned. It seemed like everybody got it, you know, up until about Christmas. The question is as we enter 23 and go into 24. Uh, will it stick? Will people remember what what happened? Or are we just going to keep going down the same path? I'm, I'm all about making the party bigger. I'm about talking independence. Not about not, again, changing what I'm about. I'm a conservative. I'm a principled free market conservative. And I think those aspects of low taxes and limited government local control translate to so many folks or the next generation of voter, right? Who in the Republican Party is talking to that next generation of voter? We need them. We want them on the team. We've got a great product, right? I'm always trying to sell it. And you do it by being positive, by being aspirational, maybe even inspirational at times getting people excited about the results you've had them. I walk with an incredible sense of confidence in terms of what I've done. I'm a four-term governor. I'm so proud of what we've achieved. I get conservative wins with Democrats in the in the in in my legislature. I get conservative wins with Republicans. I always find a way to do it, but uh, I don't do it by yelling at people and I don't do it by twisting arms. I do it by engaging. And there's there's an aspect of, of that that is uh, that gives me a lot of confidence, but let's also walk with a little sense of humility too, right? Again, this job ain't about us. It is not about... Chris Sununu. it's about those that we're trying to serve and, and what they want, not not just what I want. So, you can have that confidence and humility and I think that that keeps you very connected to the voter and uh, it's just what people are looking for now.
0: Uh universal recognition of occupational licenses.
1: Yes. Something that
0: <laughs> research that has been done for uh many years. My my wife actually was on some of that research initially. Uh you know, so many Americans need the government's permission to do their job, and to the extent that they do need their government, a government's permission to do their job, uh, I think it's one of your priorities to say, well, they can get that permission somewhere else if they like. Well, look, they, it's it's not just they can get it from somewhere else, but did they need it in the first place from anybody, right?
1: So uh, let me back up. When I first ran for governor uh, or, or public office, I mean, one of the things that drove me first, my kids were in public schools in New Hampshire, as I came up through public schools in New Hampshire, and they were just different, right? We were dealing with the common core stuff, and that got me thinking, I, I, I should run for something. I should do something. But at the same time, I also ran my own business. And we I'm a rule follower. I'm a big believer in the rules. Um, and, and if you want to change the rules, then go through the process of Congress and all that and change the rules but you got to follow the rules. And I was getting beat down uh, by all these regulations and oversight boards and all this craziness that didn't exist before. And I thought, well, this isn't very live free or die, right? What happened to that motto? And that's what really got me to run for office. Now, when I went after some of this stuff, uh, trying to change a few rules on the board of barbering and cosmetology or a few rules on the medical licensing board, boy, the, the, um, the entrenched politicalization. I might've just made that word up. Just that that lobby, if you will, would rear up its ugly head and just tear apart anyone who dare challenge it, right? And I, I realized, boy, I guess, yeah, everyone has a barber, right? Everyone goes to get their hair done. And so everyone has someone in the ear saying, don't mess with our boards, don't mess with our regulations. And what I found out, and I didn't appreciate this, was that there was so much of this was just protectionism, right? The real estate appraiser's board, exist to give other real estate appraisers their license to basically limit the number of licenses that are out there so other people can't come in and, and, and get a job. It's ridiculous. And it's it's very not live free or die. So anyways... In this legislative session, it's my fourth term, I said, okay, we're going all in and we're taking them all at once. So I'm going after all 54 boards. There's hundreds and hundreds of licenses. We're not getting rid of them all. I think I'm getting rid of something like three dozen licenses that are, that are uh, out there, maybe 700 different rules and outdated regulations and processes that surround them. There are certain boards I'm just going to absolutely get rid of. And a li- And look, do we need a license for hawkers and peddlers? <laughs> Tell me what the difference between a hawker and a peddler is first. That that'll that'll be interesting. Um, itinerant licenses—I—I I, I think that's technically a license to go door to door. So technically, you need a license from the Secretary of State for Girl Scouts to sell their cookies. Like, come on, like that's ridiculous. So we're kind of going at it all, and I've gotten a pretty good buy-off in the legislature so far. It's going to be a challenge, there's no doubt. And most important aspect is this: if you have. A license in another state and you have a substantially similar process, then we're going to acknowledge that on day one. We're going to recognize it on day one, right? We all have a similar process. It might be a little different here or there, but you know what? You get your license on day one. You can come in the door. We're not going to create these fiefdoms that keep you out. And that really gets to that concept of true universal licensing. So a lot of them, I just don't think have to exist, but the ones that, you know, medical review board, yeah. Nursing license. Yeah. I got to make sure, you know, you want to make sure that a nurse is really a nurse uh, or a doctor is really a doctor, but. At at the same time, if the process in, in a lot of these states is similar, it's so important in a place like New England. Uh, so for a lot of folks listening, maybe they're in Oklahoma or they're in Nevada, and there's not a whole lot of cross-border stuff, but in New England, we literally... You know, a hundred thousand people cross the borders of New Hampshire to work every single day, whether it's in Maine, Massachusetts, or Vermont. So there's so much crossover, and to just make sure that every business has a different license in every state, it's just um, it's protectionism. It's a little bit of a financial shakedown. I don't know, live for or die. It's more than four words on the license plate. We're going to stick
0: to it. Uh, your colleague of sorts, uh, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has been on a tour of police unions. Around the country, he calls it a recruitment tour. Um, you know, one of the sticking points, especially within your party, is this issue of when it comes to people trying to get some relief, get some satisfaction when their rights have clearly been violated by uh, a public sector employee—be that a, a police officer or someone else under the employee of the public sector—qualified immunity and. Um, This, to be clear, this should be red meat for conservatives. It's a wholly invented judicial activist uh, piece of it's made up uh, by the U.S. uh, Supreme Court. And a lot of people feel like they ought to be able to sue directly the individuals who are employed by government who have violated their rights. Is there anything wrong with that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, so a couple things. First, we've been on, a, on the recruitment tour since 2020, right? Since, well, I mean, when you had the riots um, in, in 2020, all through that summer, we had folks in, in New Hampshire, we had folks from Washington and Minnesota and all these states where they just weren't being supported. Law enforcement wasn't being supported. And, and we were able to take advantage of that. We had entire families and and uh, you know multiple individuals from similar departments just move all the way across the country to states like ours and, and take advantage of that, which was great. So qualified immunity. Here's the deal. Uh, at the end of the day, I need law enforcement to be able to do their job. And again, does it, does it mean that there's, you want to have the right systems in place so that if there's a violation of someone's rights, if there is an abuse of power, whatever it is, uh, you can call that out. You can be super transparent about it, which in New Hampshire, you can. I mean, we, we have this, um, these, you know, we, we used to call it the Lorry list and, and now we just make sure that that stuff isn't kept in secret. It's, it's out front and we, we, it's very transparent about, you know, who's had to go through that process of internal reviews and whatnot. But if I have a police officer that says, look, I'm not arresting anybody because I'm not getting sued. I'm not going to be held personally liable for what I might do and what might happen because Lord knows lawyers take it way too far. If you didn't have such a litigious, outrageous system where we've let lawyers run the roost on a lot of this stuff, uh, I could see there there being a pathway there. But at the end of the day, no, I, I need I am for qualified immunity because I need officers doing their job. When you look at areas that have taken away this aspect of qualified immunity, that have looked at everything from defunding the police, police are walking away. They're walking away from that stuff. So is that that's true in I, uh, New Mexico and Colorado? what Oh uh, New Mexico, Colorado, I don't know. I was looking at San Francisco. Those are those, two sta- those are the two
0: states that have eliminated yeah. qualified immunity. Yeah. Have police officers broadly walked away from the job there.
1: Uh, well, no, I don't I don't know about those two states in, in particular, but I can tell you where it's being discussed. Folks don't want to do their job. They're afraid. How can you do your job if you're afraid that every time you put your hands on someone, which has to happen in law enforcement, you cuff someone, you got to put them in the car, you read them the, the whole nine yards, if you're going to not just... Again, if you don't have, you already hopefully have internal protocols to make sure that if there's a violation there, there's a process and a due process. So it's due process for the officer and, due, and, and an appropriate process for those uh, that are claiming that they were a victim of some sort of abuse. But if you have a system where cops are just saying, "Look, I, I can't do my job because um, I'm afraid of being personally held liable and being sued every time I put my hands on someone," you're going to create a whole nother army. You know, we call these ambulance chasing lawyers, right? They're going to be cop car chasing lawyers, and and
0: That's not good for the system. Again, I think the the experience of the two states so far that have eliminated qualified immunity, New Mexico and Colorado, will be worth watching in the years to come.
1: Yeah, no, look, of course, you always want to learn from another state and see, see what works and see what doesn't. And if there's, you know, a gray area there, some states may do it in one way, some states may do it another. But no, I'm, uh, I'm sticking by law enforcement left and right. And, and I got to tell you, um, we're doing pretty well in New Hampshire by it. We, we really are. There's not a huge outcry uh, because we are ranked one of the safest states. I think we are actually the safest state in terms of public safety uh, for many, many years. And we don't have some rash of, of, of individuals trying to, you know, sue law enforcement, if anything, when they tried to do this bail reform stuff, right, that really, again, put a lot of individuals out on the street. You'd, you'd, when you, they did this bail reform stuff, you had individuals getting arrested, getting let out of jail before the paperwork was done by the cop. The, so the, the perpetrator was out on the street before the cop was back uh, out doing his job. And then there's no incentive to bring those folks in. So what happens? You have folks that are, are not just doing drugs, but selling drugs and all, all this other stuff. And the cops aren't even, they're not making the arrests anymore. They're just what's the point? They're just going to be let out and roam the streets. And then you get this sense of lawlessness around the street. And that's when you get backlash and appropriately so from the community.
0: Uh, Joe Biden was recently in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, He's been, of course, very supportive of continued, perhaps open-ended support for Ukraine in this war effort. Uh, The United States, of course, is, you know, many tens of trillions of dollars in debt. Uh, And uh, a lot of people are wondering, you know, where does this end? Uh, Where does where do U.S. interests end in relation to this conflict? Where do you think it should end?
1: We win. You have to win you absolutely have to win. So, anyone who's saying you we shouldn't go to Ukraine because it's because we're already 31 trillion in debt. Look, I'm I'm a fiscal hawk. I'm ranked one of the most fiscally responsible governors in the country. We're not going to go trillions more in debt. We have so many other problems that have driven us into trillions of debt as opposed to Ukraine. That's a that's an absolute drop in the bucket. But I can tell you the national security issues of not ending that the right way will send a resounding message across the world to both our allies and our enemies. It would send a message to China, who is an enemy of this country, that the United States doesn't have the resolve, that if you just wait them out, we can beat them. It would put a huge target on the back of Taiwan. And then all the allies that we're expecting to stick with us with the coalition, if something were to, to happen with Taiwan, are going to say, well, is the US going stick, to stick it out or not? So now we have a fracturing of that coalition. National security is at risk if you get into this stuff you, and you just dip your toe in the water. You got the Russia is an enemy of the united states china is an enemy of the united states you have to acknowledge that and to not push back on that and win that um and let the, the, let Russia win. Let Russia beat our allies. Just the, the, not just a message, but the repercussions it would send to NATO, uh, Eastern and Western Europe, uh, Western yeah Eastern and Western Europe, uh, and what it would mean for Taiwan. Just in the short run, let's just start there. Now we haven't even talked about Iran. We haven't even talked about North Korea. But it would be the ultimate acceptance of America's weakness to lose effectively against a tin can
0: army of Russia. So I guess you clearly see that the U.S. role here is vital. Would would you be willing to? Send- it's vital
1: for us. Yeah, it's not. People think about is it vital for Ukraine? Yeah, of course it's vital for Ukraine. But it's vital for us in a, in a us first. I have no problem saying America first. Um, it doesn't mean America only because you need to build coalitions and have allies across the world and all of that. But it, it is absolutely vital for in our direct interest to make sure that that conflict is resolved the right way. But you, so
0: you think the U.S. should be. more- more deeply involved in the Ukraine struggle.
1: No, look, I, well, I would say this. I think, I think I have no problem sending, I would never put troops on the ground. We don't need to. Um, I have no problem sending them equipment. Probably should have been done earlier, frankly, because this equipment takes nine months to a year to actually get trained on. So Biden, I think was too little too late, but, It's one of those things where either you're in or you're out, either you're going to be a country that says we're going to stand by our allies, we're going to stand by our own national interests, and we believe in actually defeating our enemies or not. And if you're not, that is a crack in the dam that all that your enemies across the world will absolutely exploit. We're being poked. We're being poked by China with these little things every day. Whether you talk about TikTok, whether you talk about balloons or whatever it might be, those might seem minor things, but it's all a, a, a test to see if we are so politically divided in this country that we've lost our resolve to fight for our own national interests across the seas. Same with Russia. We're being poked. What uh, Putin did, you know, uh, looks like he's walking away from the, the start. Uh, agreements, um, the new, the new be, start. To be the clear, new start, the yeah, new start, yeah, new start. Yeah, new start. Old, the next start, whatever you want to call it. But the fact that he's walking away from that—that that is just another pr- provocation uh, to see if Biden and, and our government has the will to stand up for America's interest. So I—I I don't. Again, I, I have no problem f- uh, fighting for Ukraine for Ukraine's interests. but most importantly, it's we're fighting for our own direct self-interest in protecting Ukraine and protecting what uh, the next issue might be. We—we we are America. We are the strongest country in the world, and there's nothing wrong with showing it. So
0: on, on, on the debt issue, uh, the United States is many tens of trillions of dollars mm-hmm. in debt, and there does not seem to be a large appetite for reducing it or really even slowing its growth in any yeah, substantial cowards. way.
1: Yeah. Look, I think this is where I I've famously said many times, uh, so line up all 100 US senators. Uh, I think you should fire them all. Um, you cannot tell me that if we took, let's just start with the US Senate, not just Congress, but or let's start with all of them. Who cares? So you line up 100 US senators, you replace them with 100 random adults from across the country. You cannot tell me we'll be in a worse situation. Right, you can't tell me we'd get less done. Like that bar has been set so low. And it's one of the main reasons I didn't run for the US Senate. I, I know I sound extremely critical. Um, They do do something sometimes, I get it, but it's mostly about policy and spending more of your money. Um, when I was thinking about running for the U.S. Senate, I had a lot of folks come to me and talk to me about why I should run. And when I said, look, I'm a fiscal hawk, I have to, I work really hard every year to balance my budget, have a surplus, and I always cut taxes. I've never raised the tax, I always cut them. So I know how to do it. I've done it with Democrat, I've had Demo- fully Democrat legislatures, I still cut taxes. I've had fully Republican legislatures, we cut taxes, we get rid of regulations, we're always making it better, it's, it's, it's awesome in New Hampshire. And there's no reason we can't bring that to the table. And what I kept hearing was, nah, America doesn't really care care about that. I thought, you are so wrong, man. You are so wrong. America is begging for you to stand up and do right by them. They have to balance their budget, their businesses do, and and Congress should have the same responsibility. I, I, I believe this very strongly in that there is no greater responsibility in life, public or private, than managing other people's money. It's not my money. It's not your. It's your money, right? It's the people's money, and and they've given me the um, responsibility, and I'm honored to have it because they trust because I've been pretty really really good at it at least according to Cato, Um, but that's their the time they took away from their families, and that's their blood sweat and tears that they worked out, and then you took a huge chunk of it, so you you need to have the responsibility to manage it. What I see is Republicans effectively capitulating and. Uh, kind of death by a thousand cuts to the point where they've given up to Democrats who actually believe this modern monetary theory nonsense that, well, if we manage our own fiat and we print our own money, then debt doesn't matter. That is m- malarkey. That is nonsense, right? That's why we have inflation. You spend too much of other people's money, you c- incur more debt, inflation is going to happen and then you know chaos ensues and we're end- going to end up in a, in a kind of a stagflated economy for the next couple of years. So whoever's leading the show, whether it's out of the Senate, Congress, or even the White House, you better have somebody that has some, some sense of fiscal discipline and policy. So, how do we get there? Well, I mean, you got to make some in, tough decisions. In let's terms of policy here. reforms, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Uh, here's a policy. Let's let's start with discretionary spending, which has gotten completely out of control. Remember that blip in time when we actually said, hey, you know, maybe we should stop doing these earmarks, right? Because that's basically political graft with other people's money. Uh, and we did for like two minutes, it seems like. And then we just did this, you know, massively bloated $1.6 or $7 trillion bill, whatever that was. Um, you know, we did the the in, in infrastructure bill, which I guess sounded good and bipartisan, but at the end of the day, all they've done is spent a trillion dollars to spend in infrastructure that has now cost twice as much as it would have before, right? Because spending the money caused inflation. So, you're really getting very few uh, new products online, if you will. There's almost no new miles of road on the infrastructure bill. Uh, we all got 26%, 27% Increase in our federal allocation, but it costs about fifty percent more to actually pave a road. So we've we've dug ourselves in even deeper holes. So I, I look. I'm just looking for folks out of Washington that understand macroeconomics that un, that can think this three or four steps down the line before they just start spending everybody's money because it it It, politi- it sounds politically convenient. Now you want to raise the debt ceiling? I'm okay with that because this country should not be going bankrupt. But you do that with the right hand. And at the exact same time in the left hand, you say, here's our balanced budget amendment, right? Here's the balanced budget we are proposing. Maybe it passes, maybe it doesn't. But the frustration I had with these Republicans, and I'm a staunch Republican, and I'm a conservative, and I wish they were conservative too, because I was saying, look, take the vote. Who cares if you lose? Force the vote. Let's find out where people are. Let's find out what we have to negotiate. You always have to give a little to get a lot. I get that. It's not easy. But if you're never challenging yourself to take the vote. And they don't. We, when was the last time Republican leadership in the Senate even offered up a balanced budget, right? It's an, it's actually an incredibly rare thing. So um, we'll see. Maybe, maybe times are changing. I don't know. But I, I'd like to see it before I get too excited about it.
0: You mentioned uh, discretionary spending. Of course, that's a shrinking share of the federal budget. And I've heard the federal government described reasonably accurately as a healthcare program for old people that also has an army. A
1: healthcare, wow,
0: that's, a, uh, that's an interesting, um, I,
1: no, I mean, I wouldn't put it there. I think discretionary, oh, no, if you look at the actual numbers, look, discretionary spending, it, it is technically shrinking, but it's still a very significant portion. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, again, you want to balance the budget, start sending block grants, right? Because you can send, you could technically send less money from any of these government programs back to the states, still get more money spent at the state level right? Because I'm not spending it all at the federal level anymore. I'm letting states spend it. So more monies actually go to the programs. You create massive efficiency by doing that. They then send it down the chain. It really does work. We, we are the model. It proves itself out in New Hampshire. You know, Why do we have such a small budget yet? We always have a surplus and we're ranked, I think we're actually ranked the most efficient government in the country. You know, It's like biggest bang for your buck for government programs. It's in New Hampshire. We're, we're not like average. We're number one. We are the best of the best. And the reason is, again, we send that money, we send the regulatory Controls down, and we let effectively let towns fight it out, right? We let businesses fight it out. We let that free market compete. So, by doing that, you can create a a lot of competition. So, everyone wants to I know Biden wants to scare everyone with, with entitlement reforms and all that. You don't need to cut anyone's benefits. You don't need to actually do that. I mean, you can create some structural changes in there, of course, but you don't need to be cutting anyone's benefits. And Democrats love when anytime a Republican steps up and starts talking about this stuff without finishing the whole sentence because they go see those republicans want to cut but no we don't Um, well at least i don't you can do it without doing that um so there are ways to do it you got to create the efficiency at the federal level but the the challenge is telling the federal government that they have to adhere to federalism right which is sending the their control and they like controlling every little thing but at the end of the day they're really really bad at it
0: Chris Sununu is the Republican governor of New Hampshire. We spoke last month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.